quickly. Uh, we are looking at First Peter chapter 5, verses 1, uh, and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 13 specifically. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage again. I'm going to read it through twice. The first time, I'm going to set up a scenario. I'm actually going to set up two scenarios. The first scenario, I want you to listen with that filter on your ears, as it were. I'm going to give you a, um, a culture, a, um, a picture of who you are. And instead of listening to it as who you are presently, I want you to listen to it with those ears and try to determine how you would hear this passage. All right? Um, I'm going to give you about like a minute after I read it through the first time to think it through. No response yet. Because then I'm going to give you another scenario and reread the passage and give you a second or two to think that through. And then we'll, then we'll have discussion comparing and contrasting the two different views. Okay. Is that clear as mud for everybody? Yeah. Okay. Good. So uh, let's, let's try this and see. Now the first scenario, uh, basically is we're going way back in time to 2001. All right. Your location is Midwestern Texas town of Odessa, Texas, uh, Midland, Texas, that region there, big oil area, flat, no trees. You know the picture, okay? It's West Texas. Um, it's in May 2001, so the events of September 11th has not taken place yet. You are a member of a church that is a mega church. And let me point out that the descriptions of the churches I'm going to give you do not match any church in Odessa that I know of, okay? I've not attended any church in Odessa, so this is not a real church. So hopefully no one will get the wrong impression there. Um, this church is a mega church. It's thousands of members. It's an evangelical church. You walk into its gigantic sanctuary and you look at the stage and you'll see an American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other side. Very typical from what I understand of evangelical churches. Um, you're on the elder board. This church is, uh, has a multi-million dollar complex. Uh, the sanctuary is state of the art with all the bells and whistles that you would expect back in 2001. You have your own private Christian school. You have a family life center with a gymnasium that hosts uh, basketball leagues and volleyball leagues uh, for the entire town. Uh, all the churches in the town participate in that sort of thing. The church is elder-led. The elder board is made up of a doctor or two, a lawyer, a few successful private businessmen, a CEO of an oil company, an engineer or two, uh, and that's kind of what it is. Now, every month you have an elder board meeting and the elder board meeting looks something like this. Uh, your meetings begin at seven o'clock on Monday nights and they end around 10. Your agenda is pretty much the same. Your agenda starts with a scripture reading, a devotional time. You have a scripture reading. You have 20 minutes of prayer. And usually you're going over the prayer list that's in the bulletin of sick people, people who are grieving, just a variety of prayer requests that are in the bulletin. Followed by that, you review the budget and cash flow of the church. How's it going this month financially? 
Then you have a meeting with the lead minister and get a staff report. Following that, you have deacon reports, uh, ministry leader reports, what's going on in the congregation at this point in time, how are the programs running. Perhaps you will have a couple who are very disgruntled with the youth program that their kids are part of. They don't like the youth minister or something. So you deal with that. Or you may have some people that didn't like the, the sermon the week before, and they're complaining. Afterwards, you have a prayer, and you disband for the evening. Now, that is the culture. You are one of those elders, all right? I want this passage is going to be read at your elders meeting right before your prayer. How do you hear this text? Therefore, I appeal to elders among you as a co-elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker in the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you that is in your care, not by compulsion, but willingly not for fondness of dishonest benefit, but eagerly, not for lording it over them, but as examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, the younger should be submissive to elders and all should clothe themselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, be humbled under the mighty hand of God so that you may be exalted at just the right time. Throw all of your anxiety upon him because when it comes to you, it matters to him. Be sober, stay awake. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion prowling and looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing your family members in all the world are experiencing the same sufferings. And the God of all grace, the one who has called you into his eternal glory in King Jesus, after you have suffered for a little while, he himself will restore you and will strengthen you, making you firm and steadfast. To him belongs the supreme power forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm going to give you a minute just to think. If you were one of those elders how would you interpret this passage by default? Again, no discussion yet. And by the way, my minutes last 45 seconds. All right, now let's try this again. Second scenario, same town, different time. It's still 2001, but now it's in the fall. It's in October, a month after the attack on the World Trade Centers. You're in a church of about 50 people. You are an immigrant community in this church. Your entire church is made up of immigrants, but not just any immigrants. You had come to the United States five years ago from Afghanistan. 
all right? So you're Afghani and you're in a small community church. Now, you were converted to Christianity back in Afghanistan through the work of an Anabaptist group. So when it comes to saluting flags, when it comes to pledging allegiance to flags or standing up for national anthems, you don't do that. That's not, you don't fly flags on national holidays. You just don't. And it doesn't matter what the country is. That's the way you are. Now, you came there five years ago and you had some young children that uh, were young teenagers and they fell in love with American football. And as they're now in high school, some of the guys happen to be very good at it and are actually on the first string of Odessa Permian High School, if you know what I'm referencing there, Friday Night Lights fame, okay? Uh, so you actually will go to those games to support those kids. But when the national anthem plays, you don't stand up. When pledges are made to the flag, you don't participate. And you can imagine following 9-11, what kind of reaction you might be getting from folks sitting around you or standing around you, I should say. Um, the fact that you're Afghani, the fact that you don't do those things causes more than just a little pressure on you. Also, you, several of you have different positions in the oil field. Some of you actually are, uh, are high up in the oil industry, which irritates some locals who feel like you've taken their jobs. Some of you work in Walmart. Some of you are, are waitresses, waiters. Uh, you have a wide variety of people within your group. Now, you are a leader in this church, which basically means that you're an older person that is kind of seen as the thought leader of your families. So you're one of these elders in this church. Now, I want you to listen again to this text. How will you hear it with that kind of context? Therefore, I appeal to the elders among you as a co-elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker in the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you that is in your care. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for fondness of dishonest gain, but eagerly not lording it over them, but as examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. And in the same way, the younger should be submissive to elders and all should clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, be humbled under the mighty hand of God so that you may be exalted at just the right time. Throw all of your anxiety on him because when it comes to you, it matters to him. Be sober. Stay awake. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion prowling and looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing your family members and all the world are experiencing the same sufferings. And the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in King Jesus, after you have suffered for a little while, he himself will restore you and strengthen you, making you firm and steadfast. To him belongs the supreme power forever and ever. Amen. Now, just a few seconds, I'm going to let you think about how you would hear this, and then we're just going to open it up 
and you can tell me on the chat if you want to participate. Um, what is the difference between the two understandings? How would you hear it? What, are there any differences? Okay. So just a few seconds and then I'll tell you when you can start discussing. Okay. Just indicate in the chat bar that you want to say something, okay? What's the difference between the two? Okay, Jen. Uh Okay, um, the first group, it's obviously a whole bunch of white guys. I'm part of the whole bunch of white guys. Um, and the things that stick out to me are that, you know, others need to be submissive and, you know, my glory will come after a time, after all my hard work. And, um, really I'm just feeling about like, I'm just doing such a good job and, you know, like, yeah, everyone just, you know, needs to trust that I will take care of everything and, um, I'm amazing. Um, the other group. Um, wait, I want to go back to the first one. Um, there's also, mm, a bit of separateness and hierarchy and, um, we know best and, okay. Okay. So in the other group, um, uh, there's a lot of compassion um, as you tend to your friends and loved ones and other family members who, um, have had hate spoken at them because they look different. They look like, um, those who, um, flew airplanes into buildings or, um, and, um, and they're holding each other and this is silly. <laughs> um, and crying with each other, um, as they try to love others and love themselves, um, and are hated. That's all. Thank you. John? Can't hear you, John. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Um, yeah, well, there have been no deaths, but um, when you said that, I thought easily of First Baptist Dallas, 
was married there for a couple of years. Um, and in my story, I was, uh, I went to Houston Baptist University, um, a while after I was reborn in 78. And, uh, so I was on track to become a, a Baptist, Southern Baptist. And, and First Baptist Dallas, they celebrate national holidays like they're holy days. Good golly molly, Southern Baptists love the flag and they love patriotism big time. So I, I get that. I was on track to become a minister. If I hadn't done that, I was engaged. That was my second engagement. If that hadn't broke off, I probably would have been one of those elders, probably a CEO. I was thinking the CEOs think about, I mean, the way you cast it, physicians don't think about operating a gigantic uh, 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 enterprise. You know, lawyers don't. The CEO would. I would be that CEO. I could see myself in those shoes. I could not see myself in those shoes at all. That's kind of like, whoo. And, and so as I pondered that, I thought, well, go like, you know, then I thought about the, the beauty and the grace of the word of God. The same passage is also to, uh, available in the underground church in China, in, in Messianic congregations, in missionary outreaches all over. And, and, and I thought the Gideons, I love Gideons. And they pass out scriptures in hospitals and everywhere else all over the same verses say different days to different congregations where they are. And that's just, it's kind of like, God, you're just amazing like that. And, and it's, and that, when I think on that, on the diversity of this and the singleness, the goodness of God in the, in the scriptures, not just Peter, but John and Hebrews and Genesis and Exodus is kind of like, how dare us think that as Southern Baptists or as Church of Christ or, or as DTS, you know, professors, we have the view of eschatology or soteriology or whatever. It's kind of like, good golly molly. But that's all. It's just kind of like my mind went way on okay. out there. Last thought is that when the missionaries went to Hawaii, they, they, they had come from a background of great modesty. They, they dressed in wool and ladies did not show their ankles or their, um, their, their, um, their wrists in Hawaii. You know, and they brought and they brought pipe organs and they pump organs to play, and, and they, they converted people. And so they got the they got the natives to wear their garb and wear their their pump organs. When they died out, the pump organs died out, and they didn't know what to do. They did not adapt to the native dress. They did not adapt to the native musical instruments. They they made their culture to become Christian, and the people were were lost. So it's kind of like, how dare us? Anyway, thank you. Ted? Yeah, when I, I don't know, when I think about the, the two different scenarios and try to, trying to put myself in both of those, the, there are similarities, Mm -hmm. right? Like in both spots, I feel a, like, like this, this, this weight of responsibility that has been placed on me. Um, in the but the, but the details of that how that shakes out are different. Like in the first one, it's it, it's almost an administrative responsibility that I feel a lot of. Um, like I it the the scenario there it sounds like I've 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 reached this place where I've been appointed as an elder because of my contributions to society or to the church or how successful that I've become in my own life. Therefore I should be able to be part of this. 
And as a result, I need to find and lend those talents in to help with that. And so there are, it's, you know, I have a staff that we need to make sure that, that, that they're being taken care of and managed properly and growing properly and producing properly. We have a budget that needs to be managed and taken care of. Um, we need to listen to the concerns of the people. We need to pray for, like, you know, it's, it's not a, a non-spiritual endeavor. It's not, um, and yet the, and so, but, but that weight is, is that of, I need to make sure that everything is kind of managed and, and appropriately set up, um, because that is the responsibility that being given, because in some ways it's the responsibility that I've earned. That's, May, uh, fair or not fair, that's that's what I feel about the that first group. With the second, that weight um, is is a weight of of realizing that I'm I don't want to be in this position, but I just think by de facto I am, and mm-hmm. I've got these people around me that are looking at me to know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel more so the the weight of responsibility of setting an example and of teaching and instructing um, because it's, it's scary out there, right? Like, uh, you know, people are looking at us and they don't, they already don't like us. And then the, and then add on like our convictions that we're not supposed to salute any flag or stand for any other anthem. Like it is, it is only God. And so being in those spots, like knowing that I have this weight that I, I need to make sure that I'm setting the right example, that I'm showing what's right for, for the people to do because this is, this is who we are and what we believe, even though we know that there is going to be persecution that comes from that and trying to protect as much as possible, try to support and love as much as possible, but to, to be able to that's, I don't know. That's, that's the weight that I'm feeling in that group. So it's, it's, there's similarities, but they're very different. Okay. Thank you, Ted. Uh, Sharon, last person. Okay. Um, the first one, similarly, that, that sense of responsibility. Um, and then maybe those, like when it mentions things like suffering, that those might feel like more everyday sufferings, like, people getting sick or how to raise a family and kind of sufferings that might feel kind of normalized mm-hmm. uh, might be the sufferings that they experience. And then it stood out like the N words, like, and he will lift you up. It could sound like I'm working really hard and therefore eventually I will gain prestige. And it came to mind in that. In the second group, um, the idea of the lion prowling kind of stood out and then maybe mm-hmm. If you were coming from that perspective, that lion probably might have a face and it might look like the people who are giving you glares at football games. And instead of being like an invisible lion, it might be a, these people around me who look like they're mad at me could be that lion. Um, and so it would feel more present. Um, and also that sense of like other people experience, like the family experiencing sufferings instead of envisioning your own family I would envision in that scenario more like other people from Afghanistan who were experiencing the same environments. So there would be like an identity with a greater group of people mm-hmm. instead of just thinking just my family. Um, yep. Okay, great. Thank you, everybody. I, man, that's, that's some great stuff there. Um, so let's, let's take a look at the text a little more in depth then and try to go from there. First of all, I, I got it. 
let's take a look at First Peter from a bird's eye view real quickly. Just kind of give you a, a real brief explanation of how I approach a text. Um, when, thank goodness, Charles gave me like three weeks before I presented this. So what I do is I'll take the, the book itself and read through it in one sitting. And I'll do that over a course of a week. Every night or every morning I get up, I read through First Peter, read through First Peter. What is jumping out at me? And what I try to do is find a point from which and a point to which in the letter. So what's the beginning and then what's the end? And are there any common things going on between the two that thread into the rest of the letter? Then I try to find the center part of that letter, um, which usually in first century letters, I won't go into the detail, is marked off by a special word, which is the word that's translated, I urge. That's usually the center point of a letter. Uh, in first century context, not just Bible letters, but letters in general. Um, okay, I'm a geek. All right. Just, uh, I'll just lay it out there. All right. So Peter begins his letter with what I call a point from which, where he says, calls the recipients God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and who have been chosen. His point to which, is at the end of the book in chapter 5, verse 13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you since her greetings. Now, whenever you have a Jewish writer, and he's writing to pagans, by the way, uh, former pagans. He's not writing to other Jewish Christians. He's writing to uh, former pagans. It's just that the, the letter seems that way. Um, when he talks about exiles and he says Babylon, that's kind of a, a number one. That's a no-brainer. You know, exiles in Babylon go together. But in this case, Babylon is most likely Rome, where he is living. So we've, over the years, viewed this term exiles and foreigners as totally metaphorical. You know, it's talking about, you know, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Terrible song theologically, by the way. But uh, that's kind of the way we look at it. It says, oh, this is talking about Christians who are feel like they're exiles because they're in a culture that's antagonistic to Christianity. But it seems like the exiles are exiles out of Babylon. And there seems to be a growing awareness among scholars that what if these are not just metaphorically exiles, but they're really exiles too? What would that look like? Well, first of all, you need to understand that Rome has a problem in the 40s and 50s. It's called overcrowding. And one thing you don't want to do when you're the major center of empire is you don't want to have situations where people might want to revolt against you. And overcrowding, lack of services, lack of infrastructure, that kind of thing. And when you have a whole bunch of retired Roman soldiers living in your area, not a good mix. So they came up with a creative solution. Let's get rid of the veterans by honoring them with the task of going into a city like Corinth in, uh, in Greece and reforming it into a Roman colony. You guys get this honor of creating a little Rome in this other part of the world. Oh, and by the way, because you're going to be taking over some of the structure, the authority structure, and they're going to be real thrilled about that over there in, Athens, in Greece. Uh, but when you do that, but 
you can't just send those soldiers, those former soldiers. You also need to send support personnel, generally non-essential workers, ex-slaves, slaves that might have caused a little bit of problem, weird cults that you really don't appreciate in Rome. So you send this whole group over there, and they start this Roman colony. They refigure this town. Well, the folks there aren't really thrilled that you're there, even if they are loyal Romans, because you're taking over some of their jobs, and you're adding to the pressure of that town. Now, in the 40s and 50s, there was a guy by the name of Claudius Caesar, and he was very good at establishing all kinds of Roman colonies. He established 11 of them. And guess where the majority of them were located? How about throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia? So here you have a group of folks exiled from Rome, transplanted a region where they're not appreciated, and you belong to a cult that's considered atheistic. You don't worship the gods. You worship this crucified criminal named Jesus. And on top of that, you're not patriotic. You don't say Caesar is Lord. You don't bend the knee to the statues of Caesar. So the Afghani group in Odessa is very much like this other groups in the region that Peter is writing. So we come to this passage. And I think Peter's addressing a group of shepherd teachers. They aren't some sort of board that sits and makes decisions for the group. They aren't what we typically think as a governing board. They're more familial, wise ones whose authority is more moral. And he tells them, shepherd the flock as willing, generous examples of service. And this isn't so-called servant leadership that so many people are touting out of Mark chapter 10. Um, that that whole passage, I think, is completely misunderstood. Jesus does not say, okay, guys, you need to be servant leaders. When they're arguing about who's in charge, uh, and Jesus says, you know, you've heard about the Gentiles, how they lord it over, and their rulers like to be in authority. He says, that's not the way it is with you. In fact, he shames the whole concept of wanting to be in charge. He says, no. You want to talk about, you want to talk about leadership? You want to talk about being first? Get on your knees and be a slave. And that's the word that he uses literally. Be a slave. You want to be first in line? You're going to be last in line. You want to talk about leadership? It's about being like Jesus who allows himself to be killed, wraps himself in self-sacrificing service wrapped up in humility. So in a church, Elders, older in age and experience, are to be shepherds. But you got to be careful. You can only take that metaphor so far. After all, shepherds themselves are sheep. You can't look at the, at the church as dumb, stupid animals that don't have any sense. That's not the way you approach it. No, the metaphor turns on Ezekiel 34, something that Peter would be very familiar with, where God rebukes the shepherds of Israel. And he says to them, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice of animals. Sounds a little bit like shepherd the flock not out of desire for benefit, right? He says that's what they've done. Instead, you, are, you have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. 
You have not bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. You shepherds didn't act like shepherds. You didn't help. You hindered. Peter then turns over his attention to the younger, less experienced people in faith, and he calls them to be submissive to older ones, but the attitude is always reciprocated by the older ones. They are to be wrapped up in, all of them are to be wrapped up in humility toward everyone. They're not CEOs. They're not presidents. They're not governing boards or headmasters. They are the beloved grandparents, aunts, uncles, and older siblings whose authority is based on respect for others and from their wisdom and experience. And everyone, be sober, vigilant, be alert. Same word Jesus uses when he tells Peter at the Garden of Gethsemane to Stay awake, keep watch, pray that you don't fall into the test. So now, what's this passage then, once we look at it from that perspective, what does it say to us here, storyline folks, today? By listening with these headphones on, by reading with these lenses and bringing it into the present world into which the crises that we experience is through COVID-19, through seeing our own family of God, who are people of color being victimized due to their skin color, uh, to refugees that we know of, people we know of on the border, and refugees in other parts of the world. How do shepherds act within that context, within a family in those kinds of crises? Because somehow we've got to boil it down to right here, right now with us, right? So I'm just going to, again, throw it out to you. You tell me, what you think is the call of older or more experienced members of the faith to those who may be younger and to the entire people of God in a particular location here, in fact. So just throw it out on the, on the chat box and I'll call on you. John, did you? Yes. Uh, my thought after what you said was, uh, in I've been in twelve step recovery groups for thirty years, and um, what's beautiful about it is that it's the most level playing field I've ever been in, because everybody's a chance to talk. It, it, but, but they don't advise. They're real careful. Nobody gives advice. They share their experience, strength, and hope. They say it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. So everybody, whether you're overcoming alcohol or drugs or, or, or codependency or workaholism or, or financial issues, you experience your experience, strength, and hope. But people that have got, they're older, 
have more experience and they, and they have more hope. And the ones who show up and keep coming back share more. And, and, and a person has got to be humble. But you keep, and when you hear several people saying similar things or the same thing or a story that resonates with your story, you get it, you take it away and you use it. You try it on. If it works, you know, if you like it, you use it. If you don't, you don't. Oh, well, nobody's, nobody's looking over your shoulder or checking your emails whether you did it. So, um, it's a very organic kind of eldership. Um, and, but again, it's, a, it's by sharing experience we can hope the older you are, you have more experience and you have more hope and you have somewhat more strength if you work the program. Similar, th- similar things in Christianity. If you pray, the, the most prayerful people I know have the best to teach me about prayer because they've been there and done that. They've seen great answers to prayer. They've been through, and often they have prayed their way out of horrible hardships, financial, relational, health situations. And I'll go, wow, I want to learn about prayer from you. Not from that stupid book, from some bozo that that, that was assigned to, to do a, a Bible study on prayer. Eh, tell me about prayer because you have been through the fire. You've been through the valley. You've been through the flood. That's how I want to learn about prayer. Okay. Anyone else? All right. I don't think uh, anyone has got anything else to add yet. So let me just move on, and uh, we'll draw this to a close, okay? Um, and one thing I, I don't want to be misunderstood is saying that there's no place for administrative decision-making or anything like that. That's not what I'm mentioning. But I'm talking about just the basic understanding of what it is to be elders, what it is to be leaders, shepherds within a local body of people, and what the primary responsibility But I think primarily we are to be looking after each other. And I think that's what Peter is addressing here. Uh, is there anyone going through trauma? Who is hurting? Who are the wounded? Who needs to be touched? Who needs to be anointed with oil and prayed over? Who needs someone who comes to weep with and rejoice with? Who is the wandering? Who is the lost, the confused, the one on the verge of giving up hope? Who is in the line of the sight of ravenous evil personified? And it's those who are older, more experienced family members. The call to them is, are you binding up the wounded? Are you caring for the broken? Are you listening with respectful humility? Uh, do we know the flock by name? Are we checking on each other? And we who are younger, are we respectfully listening and learning to do the same kind of thing in response to that? That's the call. That's what leadership looks like in a time of crisis. Not a bunch of program managers or activity directors, but parents who dearly love their children, older aunts and uncles and grandparents, older siblings who influence others through a relationship of mutual respect and honor. That's our call. So, may you be humbled under the mighty hand of God so that you may be exalted at just the right time. May you throw all your anxiety upon him because what bothers you matters to him. May you stay awake and alert 
May you resist the personified evil of the world and stand firm in the faith and stand in solidarity with your family members and all the world who are experiencing pain and suffering, whatever the source of that pain and suffering might be. And may the God of all grace, the one who has called you into his eternal glory in King Jesus, restore you and strengthen you and make you firm and steadfast. To him belongs the supreme power forever and ever. Amen.